You're listening to a message from Victory Church of the Bay Area. For more information, please visit us on our website at victoryus.org. is focused on the topic of discipleship and over the last three weeks we have been talking about discipleship as defined to be as relationship so discipleship is relationship and it is relationship on three levels okay first it is a call to a relationship with Jesus Christ it is a call to follow Christ to leave your life your old life the life that you have defined so that you can pursue Christ and the life that you were meant to have and uh, Jesus is calling all men and women to follow him. And that is the beginning point of discipleship. And a result of following Christ is to follow him as he engaged with the lost, as he built relationship with lost people. And so discipleship is also a call to build relationships with lost people with the end goal of winning them to Jesus. Not just becoming friends with them, but letting your life, be seen and let the light of Christ be seen and let it shine so that when they see Jesus' life in you and when you talk to them about, about Christ, they do see that it is real and it is not just a theory, but it is real because it's seen in your life. Next, it is a call, discipleship is a call to fellowship with other believers. You see, Jesus wants us to grow in him more and more in him as we follow him we realize that we're not the only ones he has called. He's called others to follow him. And so as we follow Christ, we are following him together with others. And so we are called to build relationships with fellow believers because Christ has designed for us to, be, to grow, to mature as we are in relationship with other believers who are pursuing Jesus Christ. Okay, and so today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're still going to preach the word, but we're going to do more investigating how Jesus made disciples. And the question now is, how do we make disciples? So I want to talk to you about the call to make disciples. And we've been talking about discipleship, and the mission of the church is to make disciples. Our job as pastors and even as members is not to grow the church. That's not our job. That is Jesus' job. Jesus said, you know, when he said to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. He is the builder of the church. Our job is to make disciples. Our job is to be faithful in doing what he has commanded us, which is to go and make disciples so that he can build the church through us as we are faithful. Amen? And so we are called to make disciples. And, and um, we're going to look at how Jesus made disciples. So let's all stand right now, and we're going to read... Our main text this morning as we honor God's word. It's going to be in Matthew 28, the last chapter of Matthew. We're going to read from verses 18 through 20. Verse 18, it says there, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be part of what you're doing in this earth. Lord, what a privilege it is to be called alongside you 
Lord, to call people into your kingdom, to call people to repentance and to call people to a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we can testify, Lord, to that because you have called us out of darkness and into your light. And today we thank you that you didn't just save us, but you're using us to be your instruments to reach the world, to reach the lost, and to make disciples of all nations. We thank you for this privilege, and we give you back all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. So we are going to look at how do we make disciples here in victory. So we make disciples here in victory imitating what Jesus did. Okay, so how do we make disciples here in victory? We look to Jesus because we're following him, right? How many of you are disciples of Jesus? We follow him. When Jesus came to the earth, he said, I only say what I hear my father saying, and I only do what, what I see my father is doing. So basically, he is just reflecting God the Father to us. And so we are here to reflect Jesus as well. So when we make disciples, we look to him as our example. So the question I want to ask is how did Jesus make disciples? Now, there are four things I'd like to share with you today, four things that Jesus did to make disciples, and that's the pattern that we follow, okay? First, Jesus actively engaged with lost people. He engaged with people who need him the most, and that practically is the whole world, basically. So when he came, you know, he engaged humanity by, you know, he was, he's the second person of the Godhead. And then because humanity is so steeped in sin and doomed to an eternity apart from him, humanity needed to be saved because mankind cannot save themselves. You know, you cannot save your own self. No matter how religious you try to be, you cannot save your own self. Okay. And so there's only one way to save us is for Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, to come down and engage our world. He entered time and space and became a man. So he walked the earth as both God and man. And he became one of us so that he could relate with us, so that we could relate with him and see him. And he built relationship with us. And it is through that relationship, through that engaging that lost people were reached and saved. Okay, so Jesus engaged lost people where they were, you know, and he didn't just wait on the church and wait, waited for the members and hope that people would come. He went out there and reached them where they are. You know what? In the Gospels, I believe it, the encounters of Jesus with individuals, uh, there's about 132 records of Jesus encountering individuals in all the four Gospels. And um, what's interesting is that I think six, uh, well, four of them he encountered in the temple. Six of them he encountered in the synagogues. But 122 of, of those records he encountered outside, outside the religious walls of the time. He encountered them where people were. He encountered them where they were at. He encountered them in their, while they were living their life. In the mainstream of life, that's where Jesus engaged. And so a good example of this would be Matthew, the tax collector. For time's sake, I just place it there, the reference. Matthew was a tax collector, and in their context, in their culture, 
tax collectors were Jews who were working for the Roman government because during this time, they were under the Roman occupation. They were under the Roman Empire. So the, the tax collectors are seen as, as traitors because they work for the Roman government, which is seen by, by the Jewish people as their oppressors. So tax collectors were seen as traitors, and nobody would engage with them. Nobody would, would relate with them. They, they would be rejected by people. And most tax collectors were corrupt. They would help themselves. They would enrich themselves. So pretty much they know what it means to be rejected. And they just basically deceive themselves into thinking that they're okay because of the wealth that they have. Well, anyway, Matthew was a tax collector. And then Jesus, of all the people that, that he saw there, the Bible says in Matthew 9, in Matthew's own account, he says, Jesus saw Matthew sitting there, the tax collector, and he approached him, talked to him, engaged with him, and said to him, follow me. And Matthew responded, you know, we, we don't have the time to discuss how and why, but Matthew did respond. And something in Matthew changed to the point that he became so, he, he left his old life and he followed Christ. He became one of the apostles and now he was also the author of the gospel of Matthew. So you don't know who you can reach, right? A hated person right there, touched by Jesus, and now we, are, we benefit from his life that was touched by Christ by reading his account of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? You don't know who, who you can who, what God has planned for people. Many times we shun them away because of the, lab, the current labels that they have. And so Jesus engaged him, and as, as he engaged Matthew, he had dinner with him along with his tax collector friends and a few sinners. Now, to be, to be in a meal in their culture, in their context, to be in a meal together, that means acceptance. That means fellowship. That means we're, you know, we're relating. That means we accept one another. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders saw that, and they said, why, why is your, and he asked, they asked the disciples, why is your rabbi eating with tax collectors and sinners. That's a no-no. Religious people will always shun sinners. They'll always avoid sinners like the plague because of fear of being contaminated by, by the filth of sin. But they don't realize it's these sinners who really need God the most. And religious people think they have God, but their attitude is really far from God's, far from reflecting who God is. Most religious people are just passionate and fervent and they're zealous for their traditions and religion more than for God. And so those who really love God reach out to those who are really in need of him. Matthew was such, and Jesus said, I didn't come. You know, a doctor does not treat those who are well, but those who are sick. I did not come to for the righteous, but I came to seek and save the lost. Another example would be Zacchaeus, another tax collector, hated by his people, and uh, he was short. So he heard that Jesus was coming through, passing through his town. So, and everybody was taller than him. So he went up a, a fig tree, a sycamore fig tree, to see Jesus, just to see him pass by. He didn't expect him, Jesus, to talk to him of all the crowds there. And then Jesus, as he was passing by, he stopped and spoke to Zacchaeus. Can you imagine? You are rejected by everybody. Nobody even wants to talk to you. And then here is someone who broke cultural barriers just to reach you. Zacchaeus, come down. 
for I must dine with you at your house tonight. Now, all the cultural nuances there, I mean, I wouldn't invite myself to somebody's home and say, hey, I'd like to have dinner at your house tonight, unless you're really, really close. That You know how it is when you have close friends when, I was, when, when you were young? I had friends who thought my house was their house, so they would come, and they would just go straight to the refrigerator, and they would go to my mom, and my, they would call my mom, mom also. Hi, mommy. And they would go, and what's, what's, what's in here? And my mom would just see them as, they, as part of the family as well. So unless you're like that, but I would normally wouldn't invite myself to a person's home unless you're invited. That's when you, the family. But Jesus broke whatever cultural nuances that were, was there, and he said, I, I want to I dine with you and be with you in your house tonight. I must stay with your house tonight. To Zacchaeus, the cultural nuances also did not matter. To Jesus, the cultural nuances did not matter. What mattered was that his, he was going after the heart. This guy was rejected. I'm reaching out to him. And here, Jesus reached out to Zacchaeus and said, I want to dine with you in your house tonight. That means being in table, having a meal together. That means having fellowship. That means being accepted. And so that struck Zacchaeus so much. He said, Lord, you know what? Something happened to him. He couldn't explain it, but he expressed it in this way. Half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I've wronged anyone, if I've defrauded anyone, if I've cheated anybody, I will pay them back four times. What was that all about? That was the expression of the repentance that he had at the time because of the kindness shown to him by, by Jesus. The Bible says, the loving kindness of God draws people to repentance. It's the loving kindness of God. It's God's love manifested that brings people to repentance. It's not theology. Theology is good, but what will break everything that's in your mind is really the love of God. And then the, all the theology will make sense. The right theology is based on the love of God. Zacchaeus, another person who was a Samaritan woman at the well, so, you know, Jews did not associate with Samaritans because these were, you know, the Jewish people were very ethnocentric, okay, at least what we see there. You know, they don't want to associate with foreigners because they feel they're, they're the people of God and they're not supposed to be contaminated by, by others. And Samaritans were half Jews, half breeds, and to them, half Jew is not Jew. Culturally, they never engaged with one another. And so, Jesus had to pass through Samaria, and it was in the middle of the day. They were, the disciples were hungry, and Jesus, uh, they said, okay, Rabbi, we'll just buy some food at the town. Stay here by the well, and the waitress will, will uh, get some food. And so Jesus stayed there and rested while the disciples went to the nearest town to get some food. Okay, that was in Samaria. And, um, and uh, during that time, it was actually Jacob's well. It was actually a well that the Samaritans identified with to worship God because that was a well that the patriarch Jacob dug and built. Because Samaritans could not go to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple, that was their identifier. That was their, basically their connection to worship God. That was their identity as a, as a Samaritan people to worship God. So Jesus was there. The woman was walking towards the well, and she sees Jesus, and obviously she knew that this man was a Jew. So there was not going to be any interaction, at least in her mind. So she just goes about her business. And Jesus, 
broke all cultural norms. Jews do not speak to Samaritans. All the more, they don't speak to a Samaritan woman. Because women at the time, and their culture, not what Jesus represented, but th their culture, women were second-class citizens. They were, not, not, they were inferior to men. So um, as a man, you don't talk, you just don't talk to women. A Samaritan woman at that, you never do. But Jesus engages her with a conversation. And he starts a conversation with her, and she was shocked. Like, you're, you're a Jew. You, you talk to me. And then basically they talk about, and Jesus was nice to her. And, um, you know, they begin to talk. And Jesus, being God, of course, knew what was going on in her life. And, and uh, he was telling about, you know, he, he began to speak about spiritual things. And the woman perceived that she, uh, I perceive that you're a prophet, and I'd like to know more about that. And Jesus said, okay, go, go and call your husband. And the woman goes, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're correct in saying that you don't have a husband. As a matter of fact, you've had five husbands, five divorces. How many of you want divorce? It's painful. Hard, isn't it? Five divorces. You're a woman in a culture that puts you down, and then you have five divorces. What kind of reputation would you have? What kind of treatment would you have from people? Rejection. Rejected five times. And then Jesus said, you have had five husbands, and the one you're staying with right now is not even your husband. So what you've said is true. You don't have a husband. You're a prophet. You know? so, and, then, and then their conversation, she begins to realize you know, that he was the Messiah. And she said, you know, when the Messiah comes, he will explain everything. And Jesus, with a smile, said, I who speak to you and he. She drops her water jar. She leaves Jesus behind. She runs, tells everybody in her town about this man. Could he be the Messiah? I believe he is. And everybody's like, what, the Messiah? And everybody went on the basis of a woman's testimony. That was so powerful. During their time, a woman's testimony was not did not even matter. But on the basis of her testimony, the people went with her to Jesus. And Jesus began to teach them about God and about his, the word. And they said to him, no longer do we believe because of the woman's testimony. But we have heard for ourselves. Now we believe. Jesus engages a woman, engages someone who is culturally not supposed to be engaged with. The result, not just that lost woman was reached. The town was reached. People believe. Engaging the lost, the engaging culture results in reaching the lost. Second thing that Jesus did was to teach his disciples, those who he is engaged and those who responded to him in his preaching and to believe the gospel, he taught them, you know, he taught them to build their lives on God's word, to build their lives on, on the cornerstone. We sang about that. To build their lives on him. Jesus taught in Matthew. Matthew 7 says there, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The words of Christ, you can build your life on it. And he says, if you build it, your life on it, it's like building a house on the rock. The rain fell, 
And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had it been founded on the rock. It's been founded on him, founded on his teaching, founded on his word. Build your life on the cornerstone. Build your life on the word of God. And let, let me tell you, the challenges of life will come, but your life will not fail. Come on now. But those who do not build, just as Larry mentioned a while ago, those who don't build their lives on the rock, on Jesus, build on faulty foundations. So when they, when they experience the challenges of life, their lives crumble. Jesus taught them to build their lives on the solid foundation of Christ and of his word. And he strengthened their lives by, by building those strong foundations. Third thing Jesus did was that he mentored those who, who were already following him, were committed to him. He mentored them to not only focus on their own growth as they follow him, as they follow Christ, but to help others follow Christ, to help others find Christ. He mentored them to minister to others. Mark 3 says this. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. He appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. These were the 12 apostles. So that the purpose of why he called these 12, so that they might be with him. Was he so lonely that he needed company? No, he wanted them to be with him so that he can impart his life. He can impart his heart. He can impart his spirit. And he can speak, impart his truth to them. So that when they receive all that, the result will be they would be sent out to preach the gospel to others. Okay? And, and the motivation behind that is love. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And it's amazing. Verse, ver, uh, the next verse says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how the world will know that he is real when they see that love is real in us and we share it with one another and we show it to the world. Remember, it's the loving kindness of God that draws people to repentance. This is what the world needs. They don't need technology. They don't need the, the technology to find their lives. They don't need, you know, any other thing. They need the love of God. And Jesus mentored them to minister to others with a foundation of love. Do you have God's love in you? The last thing that I want to share to you this morning, obviously there are so many more things Jesus did. But I'm focusing on these four things today. Jesus made disciples, you know, and as he trained them, equipped them, spent time with them, imparted himself and mentored them, and they were growing in him, the natural result was for them to be like him, to reach out to the lost. And he commissioned them to make disciples, just as he made disciples. And just as he was sent by the Father, he was sending them, okay? Um, in John 20, he said that, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. I represented the Father, now you will be my representatives. You will be my ambassadors to the world. You see, when Jesus calls you, when he saves you, it's not just to bless your life. He wants you to be a blessing to others. He wants you to be a channel of his blessing. 
That's why if you're a Christian and all you can think of is have a blessed life, God wants you to be blessed, but it does not stop there. God wants you to be a blessing. Come on now. Okay? So, he is sending us to the world. So, Jesus made, so let's, let's review. He, how did Jesus make disciples? I'm focusing on four things. Number one, Jesus actively engaged lost people. He taught and mentored his disciples to live, build their lives in God's word. Thirdly, he taught his disciples to minister to others. And lastly, he sent them out to make disciples. That's how he made disciples. At least I'm focusing on four things. So how do we make disciples now as we follow Christ? We follow his example. And in victory, this is how we make disciples. We don't have time to tell you the details of this process, but we follow his example and we've incorporated his example into our discipleship process. We do as Jesus did. Amen? So the first, how do we make disciples? We follow Jesus. He engaged, he engaged the world. He engaged the lost people. That's what we do. This is one of our, part of our discipleship process. Number one, to engage culture and our community. We are to engage. We just don't wait pe for people to come to church. I love it when people come to church and you invite, but people come to church because somebody reached out to them and engaged with them. The engaging, most of the engaging happens outside, outside of the, of the church. Does that make sense? It, it happens outside, okay? And Paul understood this. He said in 1 Corinthians, as he was reaching out to people, he said, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. In other words, he identified with them. He didn't shun them. He was a Jew, but he related with them as a Jew. In order to win Jews, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. But he identified with them. Okay? What was the purpose? That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, but not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And here is the principle. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Not that he is the Savior, but that Jesus would save them through his efforts. When we started a church in Quezon City, focusing on UP Diliman, when was that, 19, when was that, Hunt? I think it was in 94. So when we started it, in the Philippines, you know, you have this, uh, there's this thing with uh, graduates from La Salle, Ateneo, and UP. Okay, we have UP folks here. And um, we had a prayer meeting at uh, the San Jose Victory Group. And as I was walking in, I was wearing my La Salle jacket, and Joanne, the first thing, instead of saying hi, you really need to bring that jacket in? And, of course, she's joking, of course. Uh, she let me in, of course. <laughs> there's, but there's that, uh, you know, um, thing about those three, three schools and graduates there, they, they tease each other. They put each other down, you know, teasingly, and sometimes they really mean it. And uh, when we started the church in Quezon City, we focused on UP Diliman. And for me... UP Diliman is UP Diliman. 
And it didn't matter if I was from La Salle. So, okay. But part of my responsibility also, because when we started that church, UP Diliman is right beside Ateneo de Manila. And so I also reached out to Ateneo de Manila students, started small groups there. It was, a, it was hard. No, and at that time, we've tried to start a ministry there. It always failed. It didn't flourish. UP flourished for years. And then Ateneo, which is really, really just, it's, 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 you know, it's hard. And so I said, God, I want to see Ateneo change for you. So I want to see a harvest here. So if it's not even in my time, I want to sow the seed. So, so was I, how can I bless Ateneo? I mean, a of life. Praying for Ateneo. That, that's a miracle. So, and so God spoke to me and said, fast for this, for this school. So I fasted 10 days for Ateneo de Manila. Lord, break the fallow ground here. And, you know, I'm happy to tell you today that the last time I, I preached in Quezon City, which was 2013 when I visited the Philippines, and they asked me to preach in Quezon City, people from Ateneo were coming to me and saying, thank you for praying for us. We have a thriving ministry there. It, I'm not the one responsible for that, but I was one of those who planted the, the, one of the many seeds. And you see... And people were saying, how can Elasolite do that for Ateneo? It's all, it's only God who can do that. I applied Paul's principle. To the weak, I became weak. Okay? That's why I went to Ateneo. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I became all things to all men. I was funny. I was teasing my small group, you Ateneans, and they were laughing. I knew, they knew that I loved them. And I said, we're going to pray for this school. We're going to see a breakthrough here. You see? Jesus touched my heart to the point that I mean, he enabled me to go beyond cultural barriers and see people for what they really are. They are objects of God's love that needed his mercy. Amen? So rich or poor, it doesn't matter. So if you're a rich person, it doesn't matter if you're reaching out to a poor person. It doesn't matter to Jesus. If he puts that poor person there, reach out to them. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. So we engage culture and community. Secondly, we follow Jesus' example of establishing people in the faith. So we establish biblical foundations. And we point people to Christ. Build your lives on Jesus. That's why here you will not hear us say, you know, follow my preaching. Follow Pastor Neil's preaching and you'll be blessed. It's not about me. It's not, if you do that, then you're in danger. We're telling you right now, don't build your life on Pastor Neil. Don't build your life on Victory Church of the Bay Area. Don't build your life on Victor, in your victory group leader or your victory group. Come on now. Build your life on Jesus. Establish your lives. Build strong biblical foundations. Build the foundations of, of reading the word, praying, worshiping God, fasting, fellowshipping with people, and reaching out to the lost. Those biblical foundations founded on Jesus will enable you to have a strong life in Christ that he can use for his glory. Would you like that? Amen? Thirdly, we make disciples by equipping believers to minister. Just as Jesus mentored and equipped his disciples to minister to others. And we have programs and, and classes and activities uh, to do that, and we can help you, mentor you. Um, you know, informally on how to do that. But we are committed 
just as Jesus committed to raise you up and to mentor you, we are committed also to mentor you. Not torment, okay? To mentor. We're not tormentors. We, we are here to mentor, okay? I want you to catch me right, okay? So right there, we want to equip you to minister to others. Okay, look at the person next to you. Tell that person, don't sleep. <laughs> now tell that person, wake up. <laughs> now tell that person, God's called you to be a minister to others. Okay? And lastly, as we follow Jesus' example, he commissioned his disciples and essentially the whole church, everyone would follow him to make disciples. And that's what we do. We empower disciples here to make disciples. We empower people to become leaders of groups, leaders of twos, and leaders of many. We empower them. And see, the good thing is, as Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, he also gives us the Holy Spirit. He empowers us with the same Spirit so that we can do what he's done. As a matter of fact, he promised, he said, you see me do all these things? He said to his disciples, you will do even greater things when I go to the Father. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus wants to use you to be his instrument. And we're so focused on, Lord, bless me in my life, and I want my American dream. God wants so much more. There's more to life than the American dream. Come on now. You're going to leave those anyway. There are mansions up there waiting for you. What you have here, are, those are nothing compared to what Jesus wants for you. That's why. Pursue him. Make disciples. So I want to show you this graphic. This is how we make disciples here in Victory. This is your discipleship journey. Okay? You get engaged by people. You get established, as you believe, and you get equipped and trained, and you get empowered to reach out. And as you reach out to others, you, all, you go back to engaging. But this time, you're not the one being engaged. You're the one engaging. You're the one now with the mission. You're the ambassador now, reaching out to people. And when they believe, you help establish biblical foundations in their lives. That's exciting, okay? And then you help equip them and you help empower them. And those you have reached and empowered, they're the ones. You're going to coach to engage others. You see this. There's a multiplication that's happening here. This is exciting. I don't know about you. This gets me excited. I'd like to end with a few more quotes here from William Carey, one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen. He is known as the father of modern missions. He said this, If it be the duty of all men to believe the gospel, then it be the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known among all nations. If this is what everybody needs, then all those who have received the gospel entrusted with it, that is our responsibility, to make it known. To know Christ and to make him known. Okay? Now, do we have to go to Djibouti or Timbuktu or wherever you want to go to the other side of the world to do missions? Yes and no. But a lot of times when we think of missions, it's across the world. But you know what? Do you realize you can be a missionary in your very own zip code? Everybody look at the, tell the person next to you, you are a missionary. If Christ is in you, you are a missionary. He's calling you out there. Okay. And you go, oh, no, I'm a missionary. I'm going to. No, no. You can, you're a missionary to your zip code, to your workplace, to your school, to your neighbor, to your neighborhood. 
And as you look at church history and how the church has flourished for 2,000 years, over 2,000 years, it's interesting that a lot of times when we think of preaching the gospel, we think of full-time pastors and ministers and full-time missionaries. But, you know, Christian historian from Yale, Kenneth Latourette, said this as he studied. He's a historian, and he studied Christian history. He said this, the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession. In other words, it's, it appears not to be made by the clergy, the professional clergy, the full-time people. Yes, they made an impact, but the majority of the fruit of Christianity and the gospel being preached was not made by them. But men and women who carried on their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those they met in this natural fashion. In other words, the preaching of the gospel occurred outside of the church and was done mostly by the members of each church's congregation as they live their lives as Christians out there in the world and they're being God's light to the world. People see the light and they engage the culture. You can't engage the culture by just waiting for the culture to come here. You engage them there. And here's the good thing. I'm a pastor, full-time minister. I equip pe- My job is to equip people to minister. But you are in a better position than I am to reach the unreached, to reach the unchurched, reach the lost. Because you live among lost people. You work in places where the person next to you is lost. The person behind you and in front of you and around you, your boss, they're lost. You have more opportunities than a full-time minister to engage lost people. You don't have to be a full-time minister to be in ministry. God has called you to that ministry out there where you are. And some of you will be called outside, but most of you will be called to your own zip code, to your own workmate or seatmate or classmate or neighbor. The question now is, would you answer the call? So I'd like to end with this. Simple reminder. Jesus is calling us to make disciples. Will you go? It's time for us to go and make disciples. It's time for us to get trained and equipped so that we can obey Jesus and make disciples. Amen? Let's all stand right now and let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Lord, we say here we are. Use us. Lord, there are many excuses sometimes that we have, the, the reason why we don't go to church or the reason why we're so, we're so busy with our schedule, with our work. But Lord, would you rearrange our priorities? Would you open our eyes so that we would rearrange our priorities according to what really matters? That we would not put what we want ahead of yours, ahead of what you want. For what we want, all the things that we want, these are all temporal. They will all fade away. But what you want is eternal and we want what you want because that is what will remain. And Lord, we want to be part. We want to be counted in what you're doing here on this earth. So Lord, I pray God that you, whatever angst, whatever issues we have, Lord, deliver us from those things. We re-repent of looking to those things more than to your mission. Lord, we realize you saved us not just to get us to heaven, but you, you, didn't, you didn't save us uh, just from something. You also saved us for something. Ultimately, that's going to be with you for, for all eternity. But Lord, you saved us so that we can be your instruments 
to preach the gospel and make this gospel known and make Jesus known. As we grow in you, help us, Lord, to engage the culture. Equip us so that we can be confident to engage the culture. Establish us, Lord, so that when the culture goes against us, Lord, that we would not crumble, but we would stand and be a testimony and be a light, a beacon of hope for those who are really looking for the real thing. And make us genuine in our relationship with you so that when we reach out to people, we will reach out to them with your genuine love. And that is what will bring people to repentance, your loving kindness manifested through, in and through our lives. So Lord, would you use us as we, Lord, cleanse us from every material and worldly thing and worldly concern and help us to be concerned with your mission. And as we take care of your business, you will take care of ours. You'll bless us. So Lord, help us to be kingdom-minded. Help us go out there and fulfill your great commission to go and make disciples starting from where we are. Use each one of us, Lord, to be a blessing to the world. Use us to be fruitful. That many lives, many lives all throughout our lifetime, many lives will be snatched from, et from an eternity in hell to an eternity with you. Use us to make disciples, Lord, as we pursue you. We thank you for this, Lord. We give you praise in Jesus' name.